as has been my habit with Hebrews, I'm going to read a handful of the verses in chapter 12, and then during the sermon I'll go back to the verses that I don't read. So if you have your Bible, I'm in Hebrews chapter 12, which I've been using as a benediction uh, throughout this series. I won't use it as a benediction today. Um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, 12 through 14, and then 26 through 29. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who, suffer, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Moving to verse 12. Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Moving to verse 26. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So we get to run. There it is in the text. Running. There's some walking later, which I'm grateful for as I get a little bit older. Did, did anyone tell you when you're in your early 30s that sometime in your mid to late 30s you'd start making noises when you had to stand up? I remember somebody explaining this to me, and I was like, huh. And then a couple of years later, like, <laughs> I started to stand up. I love this chapter. Because it, it tells us again the point. That you not grow weary or faint-hearted. That you continue the run, or maybe it looks more like a walk in your life. Even in light of the return of Jesus, which is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about there at the end, the point of the letter is the same. Continue worshiping the Lord. Continue loving the saints. Continue being faithfully present where you find yourself. The writer of Hebrews is not as concerned with that as he is the first two, but that's part of the Christian life also. Verse 3 is the point of the book of Hebrews. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The, 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 the arguments in Hebrews transcend this as the point of the book. He talks about Jesus being better than this and better than this and better than this, about 20 or so times, in order to teach us things and even invite us into a greater maturity, there's that hinge in the book where it talks about moving further into maturity as followers of Christ. But the point is to encourage you. So even when the writer of Hebrews is teaching us something, the ultimate point of the teaching is that we would be encouraged. The very first Bible verse I ever remember memorizing is Isaiah 40, 31. And it's interesting to me because the writer of Hebrews is clearly familiar with the book of Isaiah, but wanted to say it his own way. But I love that verse. 
They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Inspiring. The writer is attempting to inspire the listeners. Many of whom were not suffering the way that many other New Testament Christians were. They were suffering some, but not nearly to the same level. And uh, they were not fearing martyrdom like many New Testament Christians were. Instead, and this is why this book applies so directly to us, the greatest danger to their spiritual faith was turning away and acting like the news of Jesus Christ didn't, in fact, change everything. The writer of Hebrews' main concern is that they have given up their first love for Christ. They're no longer regularly attending worship. This is the book about church attendance. And he goes on to talk about what makes us weary in verses 4 through 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Quoting here from Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Part of the reason that you're tired is because of how exhausting it is to be a human being and especially a Christian in light of the curse. And yet, don't miss in these verses. Like the word discipline, the, the Bible so interesting in how it reorients us, isn't it? So it takes some words that we would think of negatively, like jealousy, and says that's actually, jealousy is not an evil thing. Other words that we think are fine, like envy, the Bible is very strongly opposed to. You've got to work out the biblical definition there. Here's a word like authority, or power, or discipline, that we don't like, and yet here's the writer of Hebrews reorienting us. What's the point? What's he saying? Everything that happens to a Christian can be part of their maturing. Everything that happens to a Christian can be part of their growing up in faith, their process of sanctification. Everything that's happened to you, every disappointment and experience of pain, has redemptive opportunity. Now, this is where a lot of pastors will say something like, I've never met a person who suffered that wasn't happy about what they learned from it. And I, every time I hear somebody say that, and I don't listen to other preachers very often anymore, it just makes me mad. <laughs> I'm never going to say that. First of all, I don't think it's true. Second of all, I don't think it's helpful. Third of all, it distracts us from what's actually true, which is verses 4 through 11. Every disappointment and pain you've experienced... God didn't cause it to happen, which doesn't mean he's not sovereign and all-powerful. 
God allowed it to happen in that he allows you to live in a cursed world. Some of it you caused yourself, others from other, uh, other pain caused by others. And still other was simply circumstance of the world. But for a Christian, the character of your trauma and pain and disappointment is changed because of the Holy Spirit. That's how loving our God is. For a Christian, suffering takes on the character of a maturing agency. Does that make sense? I know I'm speaking a little bit extended and technical, but I want you to understand this. So often I hear people say something about their pain, and they blame God. And in one sense, that's good, that we're honest with him. In another sense, we're missing the scriptures, which teach us that the pain that we experience is not, God didn't smite you. The entire wrath of God came down on Jesus. Now, do bad things still happen to you? Do you experience pain and disappointment and some of you trauma? Yes. And in a Christian's life, there's a redemptive opportunity there. I walked in to um, a Bible study with about 10 80-year-olds, and the first thing I heard one of them read was from the, uh, the Lion and the Lamb by Brendan Manning, which I have not read. Your suffering has redemptive opportunity and just stuck with me because it's true. Jesus despised the shame of the cross. That's not an overly theological statement. The cross was designed to shame. Public execution, naked, exposed, bloody, sweaty. Jesus despised what they were attempting to do to him and instead conquered. You have experienced dramatically less pain, disappointment, shame, and trauma than that. And yet in him, those pains and disappointments and even traumas have redemptive opportunity. And I don't expect that to make you feel better or even good. I expect you to take that to the Lord carefully with questions, perhaps one or two trusted friends. But the truth of Hebrews 12 4 through 11, is beautiful. Not only will God eventually recompense us, wipe every tear from our eye, not only do we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, pain and disappointment have redemptive opportunity in our lives. David White, the poet, in a book of essays called Consolations, said, the great question in disappointment is whether we allow it to bring us to ground, to a firmer sense of ourself, a surer sense of our world, and what is good and possible for us in that world, or whether we experience it only as a wound that makes us retreat from further participation. We watch people do this, right? Experience pain, and we don't hear from them as much or ever. In the Holy Spirit's power, your pain, disappointment, trauma, grief, all have redemptive opportunity. It often goes slow, but God does not leave us in those places. Perhaps I should just quote the Princess Bride, right? Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to sell you something. Yes, and in the Holy Spirit's hand, hands, that pain has redemptive opportunity.
And then I love verse 12. I feel like this is where the, the, the preacher is preaching to the 25-year-olds when he's talking about run with endurance, and then he turns to the 50 and ups. And he says, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. <laughs> Since I was about 22, my ankles pop. Pretty much all the time, and especially if I go running or, or uh, climb the stairs. I just love reading this. Can you, can you picture the right? Maybe, maybe he was an up-and-down volume preacher, right? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run. Well, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet. And then he writes, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many have become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Remember the story of Esau? For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Same story, different chapter. Do not neglect to worship God in community and to learn to love those that God has put into your spiritual family. When he talks about sexual immorality, when he talks about Esau's choice, these are examples of opportunity in front of us to encourage one another. Esau is such a tremendous example of temptation and of sin, right? We trade momentary convenience or pleasure, which later probably shames us or causes pain. But in the moment, we trade momentary convenience or pleasure for joy and trust and peace later, both with God and with others. When I'm meeting with a young couple and they're talking about their plans, either before or during or after engagement, as I coach them, if they're open to, well, no, regardless of whether they're open to it, because I'm a pastor, I say, do not trade convenience for trust. It is not worth it. It's not worth it financially. It's not worth it emotionally. As your foundation is beginning to be built, it is not worth it. That's what Esau did. He let his brother take his birthright because he wanted some food. And we do it in all kinds of ways. And what the writer of Hebrews is getting at is not only encouraging us to resist temptation, verses 2 and 3, and then here again, but we have an opportunity to help one another resist temptation. And then what happens when we do that? How beautiful we're healed. I love this in verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint. That's why I talked about my ankles. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I mean, it's almost an afterthought for the writer of Hebrews because he understands the heart of God and the kingdom that's available to us in doing these things that feel mundane, like singing. Most especially receiving the Lord's Supper and baptism. In hearing the word of the Lord. In conversing with the saints. We are healed friends. 
That is the offer. Now, my ankles aren't going to start stop popping, I don't think. They may. But I might not act out of my old story so much. You know what I mean? Like somebody says something to you, and you can just feel the energy rise. But the Holy Spirit has given some measure to that and some healing to it. If you're like me and you're prone to shame, you recognize that in the Holy Spirit's power, it's not debilitating anymore. And even some of those old stories are healed. There are stories from 30 years ago that still bother me. And now, because I'm a Christian and I continue to attempt to apply the word of God to my life, when those stories come up in my mind, I hold them up to the Lord. Say, heal, help me forget, like untangle that. Sometimes it's quick, sometimes it's slow, but we're healed You who are afraid. Healed means a constant awareness of the Holy Spirit. Most of the time it does not mean a a total removal of fear. But fear with the Holy Spirit's constant sensed presence has almost no power. Your emotions are integrated. That's what I think healed means. They're part of your life. But they don't dominate. And when they lie or exaggerate, because they do, the Holy Spirit speaks to those. And you begin to, or you increasingly flourish as a human being. This is why the writer of Hebrews takes such great pains, both to correct errors that were happening in the church at the time, but also to remind them about corporate worship. In light of the end times, at the end of the chapter, in light of all of these examples in chapter 11, in light of, because in it, we're healed. That's not the first reason we do it. The first reason we do it is God is God and we're not him. And he commands our worship. That's the most fundamental part of being a human being, is worship. And every human worships. And the unique thing about humans is they get to choose what to worship. And if God exists and made himself known in Jesus then we flourish as we worship him and him alone. The full expectation of the writer, though, is that in doing these things that seem so mundane to us most of the time, we are healed, which is even better than a cure. So we run or walk as we await the quake. What quake? Read this in verse 26. Those of you familiar with Haggai aren't surprised at this text. That's what the writer of Hebrews is quoting, which is fascinating to me, considering how well he knew the book of Isaiah. At that time, so he he referenced Sinai, which I'll come back to in a second. So Sinai, when the uh, nation of Israel was rescued out, or the people of Israel was rescued out of Egypt, in Exodus chapter, chapter 19, they're all beneath Sinai. You're not allowed to even touch. Even beasts were not allowed to touch the mountain. It was shaking. There was fire and clouds. It's amazing. Reread Exodus 19. Not too many more important chapters in the whole Bible. So he's referencing that when he says, at that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, so he's quoting Haggai and explaining it to us. Thank you, writer of Hebrews. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. 
If you read the book of Revelation, heard me preach on it last year, if you studied the book of Isaiah, if you've read Mark chapter 13, you know that eventually heaven and earth are going to collide. Eventually Jesus is going to return. And I shouldn't even say eventually, I should say soon. Soon heaven and earth will collide. Aslan said he calls all times soon. Anytime you can quote the lion, it's a good move. We're waiting for this quake. I think this is the most specific picture we get in the scriptures, both Haggai 2.6 and verse 21, and Hebrews, of the actual collision. We see it coming down in Revelation 20 and 21, but this is the actual collision. In verses 18 through 25, the writer's talking about the experience that the Israelites had at the foot of Mount Sinai. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. This is all out of Exodus chapter 19. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Sad day. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So he's pivoting. Verse 18 through 21, he's talking about their experience on Sinai. Now he's talking about your experience and mine. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's actually description in the kingdom of your worship. And we're like, gosh, it doesn't feel like that. Right. That's why we turn and return to the text and allow the Holy Spirit, ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with the knowledge of that. And note, they couldn't even touch the mountain. Now, what kind of access do we have to God? Though we're not yet in his presence, as we will be when the quake is over, we have full access because of the work of Christ. 3,000 years ago, Israelites prayed like psalmists because they knew that that was an act of faith. They also had all this sacrificial system and the law and their theocracy and then their monarchy and then their exile. And they continued to have to figure out how to worship. We get to worship in spirit and in truth, in freedom, because of the work of Christ. That's why the writer is comparing the Sinai experience to what you and I receive because of Jesus. When he says that some things are shaken and some are not, by the way, verse 26, his voice, that's the voice of Jesus. At that time, his voice shook the earth. That was the voice of Jesus at Sinai. Beautiful to go back and read the Old Testament in light of the New some things will remain. And this is where we can get into deep eschatology, but we're not going to. I believe that much of the earth is already full of the redemptive power of God and will remain after Jesus returns. What the writer is talking about when he says things that are made, he means things, he's, he's talking about things that uh, do not that God's character does not inhabit. Meaning, there are some things in the earth, I think, that will last. 
challenging image perhaps for some of you in the church because we're not using our hayloft sanctuary right now. I think those are the Westminster pews, right, Rick? Yeah, got those from Westminster School down in Simsbury. This is perhaps a more lovely image. Love the way the light comes into our hayloft. I wonder if our hayloft will be here when the Lord returns. I don't know. I don't know how much its character reflects God's character. But when Jesus returns, I do not believe the earth will be destroyed. It will be renewed, recreated. And one of the many reasons that this is so important is it reminds us that our work here matters. Our small moves of justice, mercy, love for neighbor, they matter. I believe there will be art and orphanages and churches still there. And there will be a lot that are gone and a lot that are there, and I'm curious to know. Jesus continues to delay his return. We'll find out eventually. So we get to run or walk as we await this collision of heaven and earth, as we await the quake in grateful faith. We run, verses 1 through 3, and we allow the adversity of our life to humble us, and perhaps we limp in this earthly life, but we're disciplined by the Lord, which is a kindness. One writer calls it a severe mercy to allow the challenges in our life to grow us up. Or we walk, verses 12 through 14, in faith and in trust and receive the healing of Jesus. And we wait to the end of the verses of chapter 12, confident that our life, our work, our prayers, our love, our generosity, our songs, they matter in the kingdom that is not yet visible, but eventually will be. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we praise you for your encouragement to run the race with endurance. We praise you for the encouragement to lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees. We praise you for the kingdom that is not yet visible and ask that our kingdoms increasingly look like your kingdom. Amen.